Well, toss that rusty old grill into the lake and set the Barca lounger on fire. This is the Dad Word Spiral, episode number 14. Um, we've made it to 14. We've made it to puberty. That's that's where <laughs> that's where the show is now. Um, before we even get into today's episode, I want to give a shout out to Dragon Wagon Radio for continuing to give us a home. And if you have w- listened to multiple episodes of our show, or if this is your first introduction to the lovely sound of my voice, and you like what you hear, go to iTunes, go to anywhere you get your podcasts, and give us a review. Subscribe. Uh, like us. I don't know. Send us an email. Tweet at me. Do something. Let me know that I'm not just shouting into the void. Um, this week, I am not with my co-host, Eddie. Eddie has been pulled away to an emergency meeting for work, which tends to happen because we are not just dads. We're also (laughs) employed and we record during the day, which is the best time to record when we have guests. And during the day, during the week, we also work. So that tends to happen. But I am joined. uh, Let me back up for a second before I say who's joining me. Um, When we first started the show, I made a list of people I wanted to talk to. And this guy I haven't seen in like nine or 10 years, and a lot has changed in the world and in his life and creative endeavors since the last time I saw him. And I I was thinking about that a lot. I would think about this guy regularly. And this gentleman I'm referring to is Mr. Drew Daywalt, who when I uh, would see him, he was like a horror filmmaker. He created these fun little short films that were would scare the shit out of people on YouTube and the internet. And I knew him as a writer as well. And he had worked on some television projects and, uh, you know, I I was aware of his creative work. What I did not know was that he was going to move on to become a best-selling children's book author, which he did. And that's still something that blows my mind. And today in today's episode, Mr. Drew Daywalt, joins me and drew if you're not familiar with the name um i am i'm not sure if this is correct in saying this but your biggest title is the day the crayons quit it is yes that's i mean that's even in right there you get the whole you get the whole that's like a pitch in and of itself the headline says what the story is um drew thank you for joining me thanks man well it's it's good to see you again after all these years it was cool to get the email. I'm uh, I'm not super active on social media, so I think you had to reach out through my wife, who's she's still on Facebook and whatnot. So um, uh, people think I fell off the earth. It's because I'm not on social media. It's like, well, he drew disappeared. What happened? It's like Willy Wonka closed the factory or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I actually emailed your wife from a. I, I had her. I didn't even know if it was the right email address because in my inbox, the last time I had emailed her was like 2013. Oh, wow. So, yeah. And I was like, oh, this is just a shot in the dark before I reach out to your publicist. And yeah. uh, here we are. So I guess before I even get into anything we're going to talk about, how's it going? It's good. It's good. You know, in the nine years, it's been a big nine years and we can dig into that in a sec, I guess. But, um, you know, uh, pandemic wise, I learned to cook. Uh, I gained 25 pounds. I... Uh, I spent a lot of time with the kids, which is kind of what I want. But interestingly, as a freelancer, uh, as a freelance writer, anyway, um, I spend all my days working at home and 
you know, walking around with pajama bottoms on anyway. So that, that cultural aspect of the pandemic didn't deeply affect me. What was fun to watch was people who are not used to that, who are from corporate settings and whatnot, having to come into my lifestyle of the pajama, you know, working from bed laptop thing. Yeah, I, I don't know if you could tell. We are currently recording this podcast in my bed. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, like, that's where we are. Uh, the, the the nickname I have given this is Bed Talks with Aaron Pruner. I've done all of my virtual press junkets that I've had to do over the past year from the bed. I interviewed Alan Tudyk for his TV show Resident uh, Alien on Sci-Fi, yeah. and he dubbed it Bed Talks, and I'm like, that <laughs> should probably be a thing. But um, it's good record quality. You got the bed to muffle the sound. You're comfortable. I mean, you know, you can't go wrong. It's also I don't have an office in our apartment and I have a toddler and a wife. And it's like every other room is. Yeah. Chaos. You locked that (laughs) office. Yeah, I I I it's one of the I'm like trying to manifest my own office space, you know, because before the pandemic, I would go to a cafe and work because it's easier for me to work outside of home. Yeah. than be here and distracted with everything. But yeah, I get it too, man. The I was already at home a lot, you know, before the pandemic started. I all my 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 work schedule is all over the place because it's freelance and because I watch TV and movies as a part of it that when things happened, it was like, oh. <laughs> like like I mean, you know, outside the door things are different, but our our home life didn't change all that much. You know, yeah. so so yeah, I it, it was interesting hearing people complain about not being able to get out and see people, or you know, being in the same pair of pants for a week. And I'm like, welcome to the world <laughs> of toys. Um, so Drew, uh, I'm just gonna get into it. This is the biggest thing that has been on my mind. It's it's actually something I think a lot about, and I I think your pivot from horror to children's entertainment kind of speaks to certain things we've talked about on the show previously. Like like I said to you over the phone yesterday, um, we had Drew McQueenie on, and mm-hmm. he used to be really big into media criticism on like HitFix and Uproxx and other websites. And, and one of the things we talked about was how pop culture criticism has really leaned towards marketing a lot, especially over the past five years years with yeah. the, the way digital um, editorial has gone and how it's sort of muddied the waters in really dissecting and understanding why certain movies and TV shows matter and what the subject matter is and how it relates to bigger issues. And that stemmed from him talking about that, talking about media literacy, which is a similar thing that I talked to Mike Flanagan about when he was on about how parenting for him changed everything. Before that, a lot of his stuff was really bleak. Um, his horror entertainment stuff was very dark, and becoming a dad shifted his perspective on storytelling and the idea of giving hope, at least little snippets of hope for his kids to, to, to see in his own work. And I want to get into stuff like that in our talk here. But mm-hmm. first and foremost... What the hell? <laughs> like, you know, uh, you, you dropped off the face of the earth and then became a number one best-selling children's book author. I would like to know, was there a moment in your life where you just made this decision where 
I'm going to stop making these little movies on YouTube. I'm going to stop pursuing horror storytelling and filmmaking and just write children's books. Um, you know, it's a, I wish there was a moment cause it would make a great story, but there was, it was an evolution. Um, and I kind of, if you don't mind me going digging back a little bit, uh, a couple I of years. I want you to go for it. Okay, so let's, let's wind back the clock to 1978. Um, I was two. I was, uh, I was eight years old. So there you go. So I was, uh, I'm the youngest of six and I grew up in Ohio. Whoa. Yeah. And well, there's a 16 year spread from me to the oldest. So uh, mom and dad worked. Mom was a nurse. She worked late, late at the emergency room. Dad was a fireman. Um, and he worked security at uh, the, the local Chrysler uh, factory, um, like as a fireman at the factory, um, like studios out here in LA, they have their own fire, fire departments. Anyway, so they were, my parents were busy. Um, financially, we were stretched thin. They would go to work. They both worked uh, nights a lot and they would hand me off to my oldest brothers who were, uh, let's say when I was, I was 28. So they were like, in their late teens, early twenties. Oh and, boy. And, and, and there were two rules when they watched Drew, like little Drew, you know, don't let him stay up late. Don't watch horror movies and do not, not let him drink soda and eat pizza. And so don't feed him after dark. <laughs> don't get me wet. Um, mom and dad left the door slammed. We ordered pizza. They got out Mountain Dew. We started watching the late night horror festival. Cause they had these horror hosts in the seventies and eighties that were fantastic. Um, uh, local guys who were worked at the station, but then they would host horror shows at night and the, in, in the commercials, they would do interstitials and jokes and stuff. Anyway. So that's my nights were watching monster movies with my brother. I'm not, not like the really, no, we, we weren't watching, you know, um, Rosemary's baby or the shining or anything. We were watching like fifties and sixties rubber monster movies and, you know, oh, okay. that kind of stuff. So, cause they were old movies even then. Right. So, and, and then you were the six years old. You were eight years old, eight. but yeah, but it started around six, but like, we go yeah, I saw the exorcist when I was six drew. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah. Well, you know what? I saw it like when I was 10 and it, that, that stayed with me for years that, that yeah. Sorry. Uh, I didn't mean to like divert the conversation, no, it's okay. but uh, yeah. no, it's okay. Um, but that's, that's okay. So that's half of it. Right. And then, you know, occasionally I would see some really scary stuff. Like, like I got to see jaws too, too young, but so my nights were with my brothers watching these movies that we weren't supposed to watch reading their heavy metal magazines and creepy and all, you know, horror mag, you know, uh, tales from the crypt and all that stuff. Yeah. And, uh, then mom would come home and the next morning she would read to me, Dr. Seuss, Roald Dahl. Um, oh, yeah. my, my dad was, you know, he would come, he would read me the comics from the comic strips or I would, we'd read them together from the newspaper back when they were on there. So, I was already forming this like dichotomous weirdness in, in who I was because there was like this dark, scary stuff that I loved. I was enthralled by. And then there was also this sort of, um, you know, if you look at Seuss and Dahl and some of these guys that we were reading a lot of in the seventies and eighties, they were, <clears throat> they're very subversive. I mean, yeah. I became, I became a liberal, um, in large part because Dr. Seuss, you know, the Sneetches and the Lorax and, you know, these, these ideas of conservationism and anti-consumerism, they were just steeped in there along with the love of you know, a good scare and good monster. So that sort of sets the foundation for who I became. And then, okay, well, fast forward now to like the early nineties when I was in college, um, I got a, my degree was in uh, creative writing with concentrations in um, children's lit and screenwriting and I had a minor in animation. I went to Emerson, Emerson College in Boston. So that, so that's sort of like part two of like, oh, okay, so it's in my DNA. Um, and then, you know, 
through work in animation on TV and Disney TV and Pixar and all, you know, my, through the nineties, my early years, um, as a writer, you know, I, my goal in college was to become a writer for Disney. I thought I'm going to know my fairy tales cause I got this kid lit degree and it was real strong. And I know how to write screenplays. I'm like, I'm going to go to Disney. I'm going to know my Hans Christian Andersen and the Grimm brothers and the origin, the, the real origin stories of the mm-hmm. big bad wolf and just really be able to deep dive into that stuff from a, a uh, an academic way, an academic point of view. And, um, and I did, I ended up working at Disney and I worked at Deke animation. And, um, but then, you know, those jobs, you know, how Hollywood is, they, the jobs come and they go, you know? Yeah. So, so I ended up working in horror and I thought, Ooh, this is fun. Cause now I'm hearkening back. Um, and I'm working in horror. I did a, you know, all those short films in the, in like the late two thousands, 2000 teens, early. There was one specifically that I, that I still think of, sorry for interrupting just for a second. No, where it's I think a, a a woman is in bed checking her phone and it's dark and then yeah uh, some some like monsters behind her in bed and it, the reveal yeah. is so shocking and jarring and to this day every night I'm in bed it's dark I'm playing something on my phone last night specifically uh-huh. there was a noise in the room and I didn't know where it came from and I. <laughs> I nearly fell out of bed and it turned out just my wife was coming into the door, but it's, I, I, I think about that specific one a lot. Well, you know, it's funny. It's called bed pillows. Um, and it was one of the first one, one of the first horror shorts they made. And it, it basically it's the couples in bed, you know, I don't want to, you know what, this is the internet. They can go look at it, but yeah, it's, it's a big scare. Um, we, it was one of those things where we, we I think on a, the first time we put it on YouTube, I was, uh, I put it on YouTube and we got 4 million hits in a night. And this was in wow. the age, this was the age, this is pre YouTubers. Like nobody yeah. was a YouTuber yet. This is 2008 or nine, I think 2009. Probably. And, uh, we, you know, we, we accidentally shut down a server somewhere. I got a, 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 a an email from, I think it was MySpace saying next time, why don't you let us know that you, you, you have ah. followers. And I was like, I don't have any followers. I'm not even on MySpace. I'm not sure what happened, but the, like a, a, a MySpace server got frozen up or something. Anyway, it was great. And it was a, it was a bombastic start to those horror shorts because we ended up doing like 30 or 40 of those things. Um, and at first they were a calling card to get a job in a horror feature, you know, and we did, we got interest. You know, I ended up um, working on a project with Tom Savini. Um, I ended up working on, uh, you know, that didn't, that didn't go anywhere, but you know, we, we had a great time and I, I got to meet Tom Savini and work with him for a while. Um, there was, you know, Wes Craven had picked us out of the, out of the, the haystack and decided that he wanted to nurture us for a little while. Um, and these projects sort of came and they went and they came, and they went, nothing, nothing came to fruition as far as a feature. Um, um, uh, and I, and I was still kind of smarting from my first feature film star craving mad which came out in 2002 2003 and uh, uh yeah that was me it was a, it was like a rave heist movie it was sort yeah, of yeah i remember that it. yeah that was me and um uh that was that was it didn't do as well as we'd hoped it went straight to video back before it was cool to go straight to video and streaming you know you wanted a theatrical release back then um and i was like okay that was a look you know didn't that didn't go where we wanted it to go so i remember now we're i'm going back now to 2003 I, I went home. My, uh, my wife is now pregnant and <laughs> by me, it's okay. It wasn't like I discovered <laughs> I, my wife and I were pregnant. I guess that's how we should say it. Um, and I thought, you know what? I'm doing this horror stuff. I'm doing these, this like 
heist movies and I want something for my kids that they can see. So I thought I want to use that children's lit degree that I got, you know, 10 years ago at the time. I sat at my desk and I literally was looking for something to write. I, I had no idea. So it was like monster movies and heist films and action movies and stuff is what I've been writing. I looked around and I was like, okay, well, I got a computer. That's not cool. I don't, who cares? I don't want to write about that stack of bills. <laughs> I was like, that's not a picture book. If it is, mom and dad aren't going to sleep after that one. It's not a good bedtime story. And it was a <laughs> box of crayons on my desk. Here I was, I was 33 years old and I had an old box of crayons and I'm like, where did that even come from? You know, like crayons just show up in your life. They're like in, they're in cushions, yes. in car. And I didn't even have any kids. Like, and I looked at the box and it was from the eighties and I'm like, holy crap, this, this old box of battered crayons has been sitting on my desk. I, you know, I, you'd move, I'd moved 10 times, gone through college, got married and somehow, you know, right next to the, the ceramic um, pair of boobs um, pen holder that I had that my grandpa had willed to me, true story, <laughs> willed to me. A, it was a ceramic pair of boobs, like a little cup and you put pens in it. So next to that was this box of crayons. And I thought, Oh, crayons. Wow. Okay. Now I have a, some, I have a starting point, but I, what am I going to write about? And I was like, I poured them out. And it turns out, you know, these were my old crayons and they were exactly like the ones in the book. So I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to cheat here. I'm going to let the crayons write the book. I'm going to do a bunch of monologues because I've been writing dialogue for movies. And I thought, well, it's natural to do monologues. So Red was exhausted. I based that on my mom because she was always coming home from the emergency room, just exhausted and spent physically and emotionally. God bless her. And I thought red was red has to red crayon has to color at, you know, Christmas time and Valentine's day. And it's one third of all the flags on and fourth of July. So it's just exhausted and has to work holidays. So like that's sort of was my mom's thing. So <laughs> then it was like purple crayon for whatever reason, I never even touched that thing. Like, I guess I, I didn't like purple. So it was brand new pristine had that sharp top edge and, and like the paper wasn't all old or torn. I thought, Oh, that's my roommate from college who didn't like it when I left dishes in the sink. Cause he's like, it's sort of a Felix Unger, you know? Um, so it's like, this crayon's a neat freak. So suddenly I had all these ideas and then like, you know, I don't know if you've ever sitting like at a, a restaurant or a bar and you're like, you know, you, you peel off the wrapper on a beer bottle while you're talking to somebody or anything. It's almost like doodling, you know, you pull off the wrapper yeah. of a bottle and then you look at it and you're like, Oh wow. And during this conversation, I've, I pulled the wrapper off a beer bottle cause it was kind of wet and whatever, you know? Um, I had done that to one of the crayons and it was the peach crayon. I was like, Oh my God, it's naked. Well, he's going to have an issue with that or she, it, you know, they've been, they've, they've sort of been uh, gender neutral. We wanted them purposely to be gender neutral or I did anyway. Um, anyway, so the crayons wrote themselves. So that's 2003. And then I sent it to an agent in the East coast and the agent was like, it was this gruff. He's a wonderful human being, but he reminded me of um, the character Quint from jaws. Name's Jeff Dwyer, and you know he's like he sends me back this email, and he's like, "All right, you know, actually, no, it's a phone call." He's like, "All right, kid, you know, you can." Uh, he's a crusty old dog. He's like, "Clearly, you can cross your t's and dot your i's. You know what you're doing. I'll represent you, but for God's sakes, don't call me all the damn time because you're gonna frustrate yourself and piss me off. So just leave me alone and let me go sell your book." And I was like, "Wow, this is, you know, I'm at this point, 13, 12 years in Hollywood, and I'm like, this guy's tougher than anybody in Hollywood that I've met." And he's a kid lit, you know, he's like, you know, he sells books about fuzzy bunnies and he's telling me to, you know, shut up and sit down. Um, so he, he and I talked here and there once in a while, but I gave up on kid lit. I was like, oh, okay. I wrote that book. I got it out of my system. You know, my, my, my wife had the baby, my daughter was born and 
you know, we, I went into to dad land a little bit, but then I was also still dabbling in horror. I get a phone call in 2009, you know, we're fast forwarding now six years. And, um, I get this phone call and this, this guy says, is this Drew Daywalt? And I'm like, yeah, who's this? And he's like, he's like, I got good. I got good news. You know, I sold the book and it's getting set up. And I'm like, who is this? What? Huh? And he's like, it's Jeff Dwyer. I represent your damn book. I sold it finally. So he, he'd been trying to sell this thing for six years and he's so dogged. Wow. I had given up kind of. And he's like, yeah. And it's with, you know, it's Philomel at Penguin and um, we've got a really great illustrator um, and his, his name's Oliver Jeffers. And he's, 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 he's got this great idea for the book, blah, 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 blah you know, the whole thing, the pitch. And I was like, this is great. Whatever. You know, I, it's a, and now it's like, now it became kind of a, you know, a token, something that I could, oh, now I have something I can show my kids. Like my goal achieved, you know, but then like we didn't get it illustrated and published because, uh, children's publishing at any rate works at a, a glacial pace, s- slower even than Hollywood, if you can imagine that. So the book didn't come out until 2013. And, and because of that long delay, I had started to make some pretty good headway in horror. <laughs> and that was like, that was right. so in the middle of like my manager calls. And he's like, what's this thing with this crayon book? This is my Hollywood, well, different person. My Hollywood manager calls. And he's like, what's this deal with this picture book that's taken off? And I was like, Oh, it's this thing that I wrote like 10 years ago. And, you know, I'm really excited. But I said, yeah, you're excited. I just got people convinced that you sleep in a coffin at night. So you're all creepy to do horror movies. And there's pictures of you with like <laughs> in kindergarten classrooms with kids on your knee. And he's like, I've worked really hard to like, you know, curate this image of you as a scary guy. And he's like, what the hell are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm following the feather from Forrest Gump. And now, you know, it floated through horror films and now it drifted over to um, picture books. And I said, you know, I just want to tell stories. I don't, I don't really, at that point, at that point, I just, I didn't care whether they were scary or funny or cute, as long as people were getting something out of my experience. Cause I wanted to give, I really wanted to give back because there was such joy in my heart from watching like, um, the old Jacques Turner movies, you know, like the original cat people. And I walked with a zombie, right. all those old monster movies I watched with my brothers, you know, or like all the stuff they did at universal and, you know, and, and combined with my joy from, you know, reading where the wild things are and the cat and the hat and the sneeches like with mom. So I wanted to like, I didn't care who was hearing my story or what kind of story it was. I wanted stories. I wanted to give back the way that my heroes did, you know? So it's kind of, uh, unfortunate and it's a thing that there is a thing that people do that you have to look or feel the part to be able to be the part you know what i mean if you're cultivating an image of horror filmmaker i mean we talked to mike flanagan on the show he is a horror filmmaker he does not look like a quintessentially creepy guy he's a nice midwestern family man who wants to tell stories about families and the human experience and some of his stuff is super fucking terrifying but the it's not just here to just scare you it's here to tell a deeper story and take you on an emotional journey and man like i was talking to my wife about this and she's like wow from horror to children's books like that's a that's a big transition and i'm like but is it and you and i talked about that over the phone um briefly but can you talk about that a bit more because you know i said to her briefly something you said to me along the lines of santa claus and the boogeyman exist in the same space 
Yeah, well, it's horror and 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 children's fantasy, which is kind of where I fall. I, I fall into the, I, into the fantasy component of what kids read. There's other things in nonfiction and um, social issues and current events and those kind of things. But I, in reality, I tend to dive into fantasy and laughter. That's uh, joy. You know, I want to make kids laugh. Um, but horror and children's lit, I mean, my goodness, it seems like they're diametrically opposed, but really... To me, there are two sides of the two two sides of the same coin, and a hundred percent two sides of the same coin. Because when you're seven or six, let's go to let's go to five. When you're five years old, you really I did I believed one hundred percent in Santa Claus and Easter Bunny and all of these amazing, wonderful things. The Tooth Fairy was going to come, and you know I'd watch cartoons and I, I I had a hard time distinguishing between you know dragons and dinosaurs because they're neither of them are around but some of them used to be and like i was like wow this is what's a magical amazing world giants you know giants are real dragons are real um and lord of the rings elves are real if you just you but they, they bend into the trees and you have to look for them and you look for other fairies when you're in the forest fairies, yeah right right yeah all this stuff's beautiful and amazing but then it gets dark out and this the hag comes out from under the bed and she's gonna get you you know and like you know, if you flush the toilet after you go to the bathroom at night when you're little, you have to, I have to run back to my bed and jump under the covers because that yep. makes a loud noise and the monster's going to hear the toilet and he's going to know I'm in the bathroom. He's right. And you got to jump from a few feet away from the bed so that they don't grab your your feet because oh, you get too yeah. close. Like, yeah, no, I remember that. Yeah, <laughs> Turn the light off, run and jump. It's funny. You had a bump in the night last night because last night I was, I was, you know, I was going to bed and uh, I had that thought. I was like, I'm 51 years old and I'm walking toward my bed and it's dark in the room. You know, I've already turned the lights on. I'm just going to, I'm just going to hop in the bed and go to sleep. I was exhausted. And for a flicker, I looked down just cause I happened to look down and at the, uh, and there's that space under the bed. And I was like, yeah, for a millisecond. And I mean, just a millisecond, something's going to get me. Dude. And I jumped into the bed. And I was like, what am I doing? I'm a grown I am 45 man. years old and I have to have the closet door shut all the way because of the <laughs> Stephen King short story, the boogeyman, which I read when I think I was like eight years old and the whole idea was that he's in the closet and the door was open just to crack, just to crack. And he's watching you that whole, I can't go to sleep with the, with the closet doors open because of that story. This stuff is deep. It's deep seated. And you know what? It's not only that it's generation. It's like DNA memory because we, you know, we are instinctively scared of the dark because the dark was a terrible place in man's early history. You know, you had, sloths and bears the size of you know semi trucks and god awful stuff that really could come out at night and eat you dire wolves I and mean, these are real animals that could they were trying to eat our the proto people um but anyway so this is a world where you got santa claus on one side of the coin and you flip it and you got you know the witch who lives in your attic you know that kind of stuff and that's a it's a wonderful time when you're a kid <clears throat> And it's also a magical time, but it's also a horrific, terrifying time. And people tend to gloss over the terrifying part and you just go, well, okay, well, don't scare children. But really what that statement means is I had things happen to me, you know, and I'm not talking like abuse or anything like that, but I like just scary stuff, just like bump in the night, normal suburban nighttime kid stuff. Um, you know, you, a bush moves and you think it's a monster and it affects you. You see a movie, a monster movie too, too early for your, for where you are developmentally and it messes you up, you know? So that's a, it's, and it's an amazing time. And every writer I've ever met is in some form. Well, not every, most, most every writer I've met, and I'm saying this as a compliment is, is stuck in an arrested state of development somewhere along the way. And I, what does you know, that I, mean? I, I, well, like for instance, 
people, there are people who are stuck in their twenties as writers, um, emotionally. Oh, okay. And, and so they write for their tw- the, the 20 something crowd. They write the Marvel movie. They write the star Wars movie, right. they write the action, okay, gotcha. you know, or the horror movie, you know, they're in there, you know, and that tends to be late teens, but like, rather than, I don't want to get into deep psychoanalysis of, of artists, but you know, I'm kind of stuck around eight, nine, 10 years old, you know, as far as, you know, cause I'm a big man child in many ways. I mean, what well, we can get into this more, but, you know, emotionally I feel very old sometimes. And I, you know, as a, as a dad, you got to be the guide and the leader and stuff, but, you know, deep down inside, you know, I like my star Wars action figures and I love Dr. Seuss and, and, you know, my brother who, you know, thinks I'm stuck as a kid, I'm, he's like into big trucks and snowmobiles. And, and it's like, dude, you are too. So shut up. And right. You just have different toys. You know, you got a big, you got a, you know, big, big lifted truck and stuff. And it's like, we well, are stuck too, man. That's a stomper, you know, that's funny. So anyway, like, so everybody is in some degree, some kids, some guys are like really crazy into baseball or football and, you know, and, and, and it goes for men and women, but mostly men I've noticed, but, um, cause women are just awesome and way more mature than we are. <laughs> but, um, you know, so I think that because I am sort of interested in that part of my life and that part of my life really left, left me, um, deeply affected in good ways, mostly some bad ways too, but mostly good ways. I like to explore that world. And because I speak kid and I'm in that world, I mean, part of the reason I think the horror shorts worked is I was getting back into everybody's like really down under the skin as far as what scared you as a kid. And then yeah. I'd use that same skill to make kids laugh. And now I do school visits and there'll be a thousand kids in a gym. Well, before the pandemic, there would be a thousand kids in the gymnasium laughing like crazy over some silly joke that I wrote because I speak, luckily I have the same sense of humor as, you know, a nine-year-old. <laughs> so. That's interesting. I think that a lot of people lose that. So holding on to that mentality or that joy that that tends that adulthood tends to uh, destroy is um, I think that's a that's a that's a gift. And I mm-hmm. wish I had that. Although I think I've always been a grumpy old man. When I was five, I was complaining about my bunions and you I know. <laughs> and then I ended up having bunions later in my life. Um, it's it's funny, though. It, you know, you talk about speaking kid. Did this help in parenting for you? Like, did you want to be a dad? You know, it, it came. The first one was a surprise. Like, whoops, I'm pregnant. Oh, uh, what, what? Huh? <laughs> um, but, I, but I did, you know, like the big plan was, oh, someday I'll want to have kids, you know. Um, but speaking, as far as speaking kid, like, you know, for me, it's been, um, yeah, it's been a wonderful blessing. It's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I know that some people wouldn't say that, but I do. I think, um, my kids are my world now and, you know, for all my own, you know, adult, adult foibles and faults and weaknesses, you know, I do try and go back to, um, just my own kids, Every, everything revolves around them in, in, a, in a certain way. And that keeps me happy. You know, that, that keeps me tied into that joy that also the joy, I'm not a person who can write if I'm miserable or unhappy or really worried about something, you know, like, you know, there's right, a long yeah. time there where you're just trying to get the bills paid, especially as a writer, you know, like, Oh, I know, you know, crayons happened when I was 43, not 23. So there's 20 years there of trying to write and having people saying, no, no, no yeah, we like this, but can you change that a lot? No, no, sorry. We're not publishing that. We're not producing those kinds of movies, you know? So the finances would go up and down and up and down, mostly down, you know, to a point where I was, I was, 
for at one point, right before this book broke, I was paying our rent with a credit card, just hoping to God we didn't get kicked out. And it was just, ugh. you know, but then you do, you know, you put on, you know, actually I'd say you don't have, I was to say, I put on a happy face, but you know, I go to hang out with the kids after all of that stress and they brought out the joy. I didn't have to put on the yeah. happy face. I started to say I put on a happy face, but, but no, they put the happy face on me. It's crazy. It, it, I go through that too, where it's like, I'll get into these mental spaces where I dread being around my daughter because I don't want to project that around her. And then she just brings something else out in me. And I think part of it is she sees a different person than how I feel I view myself. Right. Does that make sense? Totally. And yeah. In, in, in the, and in having that experience that, that influences the way I view myself and then changes how I view the world. And it's been a huge perspective shift for me over the past three years. I mean, the sure. nine months leading up to her birth, I was on a dad word spiral of my own. And that's where the name of this show came from because of that experience of the stress and anxiety and panic because right. of my, you know, my upbringing, my story and not having a dad or a grandfather or a great grandfather or an uncle or any of that. Um, and that going through all that and then, you know, holding the baby for the first time ever in my arms because I'd never held a baby before. Yeah. Everything seemed to like the stress was still there, but it also felt like it was going to be all right eventually. Like yeah. there were bigger fish to fry that. Yes, I am trying to make um, I'm trying to make an impact creatively in the world and find success. But also now. I have this extra appendage that's a part of me, but not a part of me that I have to keep alive. Yeah. And that takes precedent and priority. And when you say, you know, your kids are everything to you, that sounds like a stereotypically cliche thing for a parent to say that I remember, you know, I'm in my twenties and my thirties. Friends of mine are getting married and having kids. I'm single. I'm not doing that. And I would always like look at that statement and be like, oh, okay, yeah, whatever. I've heard that before. Mm -hmm. But then when you're in the experience yourself, it's like, oh, <laughs> they, I mean, it's, it's true. It's the truth. And I feel like there's this distinct line in the sand of my life before my daughter and after my daughter. Yes. Like before Lily, I, everything was different. The, my depression, my resentment, my shaded view of the world, my energy, my output, like everything I did was different because it was not to serve someone else. It was all self-serving, mm -hmm. you know, my own stuff that I ended up going into therapy for. It was all self-serving and rooted in me. Yeah. And there is this thing that I, I think in... <laughs> I think in men and women who want to be parents and step up to the to the plate to do the job as best as they can, there's a thing where they you recognize, oh, this isn't just about me anymore. It's about the way I serve another person and influence and impact them, especially at this young age, and see how that shapes them into who they are, both positively and negatively. And so, yeah. you know, I think that's a big thing to be already be have that creativity in you mm -hmm. and that knowledge of both, you know, the history behind fairy tales and the horror stuff, because you're bringing a lot to the table, um, which I guess leads me <laughs> to talk about, um, you know, there's, there's multiple ways I can go with this. 
but a lot of the conversations I've had with my friends in the horror community, uh, I don't have many anymore that I talk to, but uh, friends have multiple times talked to me about, so uh, when she gets to be a certain age, you're going to show her the shining. You're going to show her the exorcist. Uh, you're uh-huh. going to sit her down and educate her on, on, you know, the good stuff. And I'm like, maybe, mm-hmm. but I mean, I saw the shining when I was eight. I saw the exorcist when I was six. I saw poltergeist when I was six. Like yeah. those are things I don't necessarily want to show my kid at the age that I saw them right. because developmentally you're not, you're not in a good place for that. Um, so I'm I'm curious what your perspective of and your experience was in, okay, I've come to the table with this knowledge and the stuff that I'm into and being a dad, I want to share this, you know, I want to teach and mm-hmm. share because when I was a kid, this was exciting for me to experience. How do you walk that line to show your kids, here's this cool thing that shaped me. And also be aware that, hey, this might not uh, affect you the same. Well, yeah, you, you, well, you draw, you walk the line a little bit as a parent and everyone, and everyone makes mistakes, but, you know, it's a fine line between wanting them to be educated and impacted and have something that they can grow from and take away and something that you don't want to have happen, which is to scar them and have them learn in that yeah, way. Right. Is you're going to leave, you're going to leave this. Some of these movies are going to leave marks, you know, I mean, and they did to me because, you know, at the time I had <clears throat> teenage and early 20 something brothers who did not have a good sense of judgment at that time. You know, they were yeah. young and they were unmarried. They were, they were just dating. And it was, a, it was also the seventies. dude. It was the seventies. Right. Yeah. These, you know, my brothers would go out in the backyard and smoke a joint and then come in and I was like, oh, it smells like the neighbors are burning leaves. And they'd be like, oh, they are, they are, you know. And so they smoke a jail. <laughs> back. And now they're watching a horror movie, eating pizza stoned with their kid brother. And they're, they're living, they're living the good life as far as they're concerned. But what they don't know is that they're they're showing me a movie. Most of the time it wasn't bad, but sometimes they, there'd be a movie that would scare the hell out of me. Um, and I don't want to do that to the kids. I mean, and, you know, I, 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 I like to show the kids, I like to, to give them a sense of literacy and because uh, I'm a pop culture junkie. I love movies. I love books. Um, I don't consume a lot of crap. I don't need to see every movie that comes out. I am, I guess, discerning in that way. And I always have been. But, you know, I, one of the things that I vowed and one of the things I didn't do with the day the crayons quit was I did not talk down to kids because that drives me crazy because right. you talk down to kids and then then you, you know, you, you don't really get more kids to listen by talking down to them. You actually lose more kids because I always tell people, I talk up to them and you will be surprised how they step up to the task. Um, yeah. I've always done it with my own kids. I've always been, <clears throat> my daughter, Abigail is, um, you know, 17 now. And she said, she's, she's she <laughs> That's often, just crazy to me. I, I remember your kids yeah. were in your horror shorts and <laughs> like, what? Yeah. Well, she says, you know, the thing about growing up with dad, meaning me, obviously, is that, uh, you know, if you ask him a question, you're going to get a straight answer. And I was always really straight with the kids. I wouldn't scare them with answers like about the world or life or anything like that. But <clears throat> it created an honesty and an openness for me and my kids that now they trust me with anything. And I'm not the other. I'm not on the other side of the table. I'm not on the other side of the fence from them. Mm. I'm not, oh, you know, because, you know, we all grow up a little bit with I can't talk to mom and dad about that. They'll kill me. Or right. it's such a weird thing. You know, it's like, you know, 
like something like as simple as like getting pubic hair, you know, when you, you know, and you're 13, 14 or whatever. And you're, you're, you're and it's like, ah, do I talk to him about my kids? You know, it's come back to haunt me. We'll talk to me about everything. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, it's and it's wonderful because I have taught them to do that and right. talk down to them. But I did, I did try and shelter them from really, really awful, scary stuff because there's no reason for that. Like I can't hardly, you know, as much as I love horror, I can't hardly watch it anymore. You know, I think I was watching, um, God, I was just talking about this the other day. It was, uh, it was one of the movies that I watched. It was, um, uh, I won't name the movie because I don't want to pick on anybody, but it was a really scary, popular film and it was great. The writing was good. The directing was good. There were scares were good. I'm in the theater and I was like, I can't take this anymore. And I walked out and I played video games, you know, in the little arcade at the movie theater here. And I went back in like just at the, at the end for the credits and stuff. And, you know, it's just to see, because I had some friends who worked on the film and it was like, I was, I was, it was a combination of bored. Cause I know how the soups made. I know the ingredients. I know the sausages are made, I guess is the expression. So I knew the scares and stuff, but it was competent, but also it was really upsetting because so much horror now um, for the past, I'd say 25, 30, maybe 30 years has been a, not just terror and scary, not just the, a scare or it, but it's, this, there's a, a component of despair and tragedy to yeah. comedy or not to comedy to horror that just makes me crazy because I'd like to get the scare. I'd like to see the cool monster, but do I really need to know that, you know, his soul is being ripped apart and they're going to hell and they've just lost a child. Like I was, there's another good example. I was watching it as a dad, um, the new one that came in, not, well, not the new, new, but the, the first one, there were two, right. I'm, I'm so not yeah. in touch. So I was watching the first one and the kid gets his arm pulled off or I think it was his arm pulled off. It was this horrible scene where the, 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 the clown monsters pulling him into the sewer. I think it's Georgie or whatever the character's name is. Yeah. And he loses his arm, I think in that, in that, if I remember correctly. He does. And okay. So I'm in, a, I'm in, the, I'm at the time watching this. I'm in my forties. I'm a dad and I'm in a audio, a packed opening night movie house with, I'd say mostly people in their twenties and thirty somethings, you know, and these are horror fans. These are people who love Stephen King. They love it. They love, they're there every opening night for monster. And this was the last one I went to. It was opening night. And it was, um, I was so sad and horrified at this child getting hurt. Cause I, you know, left the kids at home and came out to see a movie. And you know, what's something about that story is they don't in that, in that movie, I don't remember if it's even explored in the original miniseries, I don't think it is. They don't go into how that loss impacts the parents. Not at all. They don't go into that at all. It's just not. There. No. Well, so you don't I, think about it. No, but I'm sitting here thinking, Oh my God, this is awful. And I'm not like offended or anything like that. It's not that kind of a feeling. It was more like, this is broke my heart. You just broke my heart. And I, and I, I, I actually teared up. Cause I'm like, this poor little boy screaming in agony is getting injured and pulled in by this beast. It didn't matter. There was fantasy at this point because it was so gritty to me and the audience is laughing and cheering and because they know the book and they're wait, you know, it's a little bit of fan service. They're waiting for that moment and la la la. And I was just like, this made me want to throw up, made me want to fucking throw up. And I was like, I can't handle this because fatherhood has changed me. I'm going to, maybe I'm older and it's not as, it's not funny, even though they know it's fake and they know it's effects. So they're like, Oh, what a, just a story. Yeah. But you know what? I have been exposed to enough 
trauma and tragedy in my actual real life now at the ripe old age of a half century that I don't necessarily want to go and get into like misery porn. You know, it's like, right. right. That was what it was. was ah. Yeah. You know, I wrote a thing for the Washington post when my daughter was half a year old, I pitched this idea of how fatherhood has ruined horror movies for me. Yeah. And it, I, I didn't realize it. I was covering the walking dead for work. And I was watching an episode at work on the computer. And it was a, it was a scene in, uh, I don't remember the season, but um, the Whisperers were what, part of the storyline. And they took a what looked like a newborn baby oh God. naked and put this baby out as bait for a zombie horde to eat. Yeah. That was it. That was the whole thing. They, they took the baby. Baby's crying. Here I am, my daughter's six months old, I'm working night shift at this job while also watching this for a freelance gig, and I lost it. I got so angry, I got angry for multiple reasons. I got angry that the writer's room decided this was the right decision for the story. I got angry at the characters on screen for doing this to this child, and I got angry at myself for getting angry. And getting so simply affected by this. And I had to go for a walk. And I realized in that moment, holy shit, fatherhood has changed how I view horror films. Suddenly I'm watching The Shining and I'm viewing it from Jack's perspective. And I'm thinking what Jack is going through, who is the villain of the story, but also he's suffering addiction and not realizing that he has this, you know, mental situation where he has this ability to shine and he's not handling it so in turn he's going to the bottle and then lashing out and harming other people and it's like oh my god i'm viewing jack as a victim and then i went and i watched the pet cemetery remake and suddenly i'm in a situation where i'm viewing lewis creed i think that's the dad's name like i remember seeing that movie when i was a kid thinking oh that's so stupid i wouldn't do that why would you make such a stupid decision and bury your dead kid you know, in a pet cemetery. 100%. And now I'm like, yeah, I would do that in a heartbeat. Yeah, you would do. do, do. If, if there was a magic cemetery that would bring my daughter back to life if something happened to her. Yeah. And I knew what the possible ramifications would be. What? No. Yeah. Do it in a heartbeat. I'm watching that movie. I'm like, oh, my God. I am now seeing things completely differently. And my barometer for watching the the stuff that terrifies that I used to get off on that I used to really enjoy. Yeah. Now inflicts so much mental despair and anxiety on me that I can't do it. Yep. Yeah. It's almost like uh, it, it, like rock and roll. They say, you know, hard party and rock and roll is a young person's music. It's almost like horror is a young person's media because once you have enough, not everybody, but, you know, for me and obviously for you, you know, you get to a certain point where you've had enough actual trauma and you don't want it. Now you want that peaceful, not peaceful, but it's hard to describe, but you just don't want the utter destruction of a life because you value it. I think in a different way, I don't want to say more, but you value it differently as you get older. You know, like I actually had a, <clears throat> it finally happened for me. I had, this was about three years ago. I had a um, horror A-list star, like studio level A-list horror star, um, a script that I had written, which was really scary. Um, and money 
in, and I, I lined up the tri, it was the trifecta. I, and, 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 the, and the person who I lined up, she's incredible to work with. She's a friend. Um, but her schedule was clear. She was, she's ripe to do this movie. Um, and it was really violent and really scary. And I was like, oh, okay, well, this was around Halloween time that this was happening. And it was like all the, and I'm like, am I really having to examine, you know, I'm, I'm at that point, you know, five, four or five years into, yeah, yeah. Four or five years into children's lit, you know, visiting schools and doing book tours and writing sort of really delightful, um, funny kids books, comedy for, ch- for little children. And my son came running in. He had seen a snippet of a trailer or something for um, the original Halloween with Michael Myers. And he'd seen just enough of this trailer on TV, scared the hell out of him. And in the middle of the night, he comes running in, jumps on my bed, he's crying, ball his eye, tears going down his eyes. And he's terrified that Michael Myers is going to get him because he had a nightmare that Michael Myers had gotten into our house and was going to kill me and just cutting everybody up. And, and he hadn't seen like the movie, which, you know, was terrible. It was, he just saw a trailer and I made my decision that night. The next morning I called my manager and I said, okay, I know we're all excited about this, but I can't do it. You can't, it's done. I can't do this movie. I, like I worked so hard to get this film, but I can't do it. And I, I called the, the actress and she totally understood. She was, she, she had something lined up to go to next anyway. And you know, the money people, they don't care. They're like, all right, whatever. This, this guy's a kook. He doesn't want to make his movie now. So um, <clears throat> they moved on. Everybody moved on. And my manager, who's an awesome person said, I get it. He's, Cause he's a dad now too, a new dad. And he's like, I get it. I don't, I can see you not wanting to do this. He's like, so let's, let's think about what do you want to do as far as, you know, creating film? And I'm like, well, mostly, mostly I'm not doing much film anymore. It has to be a project that I really excited about. Maybe that I wrote it has you know, to come from, but, but also I want to work in the kids space, you know, like movies for kids, not like the juvenile garbage that's, that fills Netflix and, and, and Amazon, like just like, but like really something substantial and good. Right. And that's what I'm looking for to come along. And, you know, I'm figuring eventually, hopefully before I'm dead, I'll find something cool and go make that movie because that's also not the prime way I'm trying to pay my bills anymore. You know, I am very, very blessed in that my books pay the rent and I don't have to pay the rent with a credit card anymore. And I'm, yeah. when my kids need shoes, I can just get shoes. You know, and it sounds like a silly thing to some people. No, but it does. Yeah, but, but I'm, I get it. I've, I was, I mean, I kind of am in that place now. <laughs> I was in that place worse during the heat of the pandemic, you know, where you have to suck it up and realize, okay, uh, you, this is where we are. Don't feel shame for it. Accept yeah. the reality and try to work through it. And thankfully, I have never even talked about this. My cousin who is pretty well off sent me a gift, just un unsolicited a check in the mail. Oh, wow. Um, that I'm not going to say how much it was for, but it helped alleviate some concerns. And this was roughly, I don't know, this was towards the middle to end of last year because it was getting to a point where like, I'm on unemployment. Nothing I'm doing is getting jobs. And, and because of the pandemic entertainment sort of dried up and you get to that point as a parent, you start questioning your own self-worth. And if you're able to do the job that as a father and a husband, 
society says that you need to do. And it was really, it's been really intrinsically in me about, I need to support my wife and support my kid. And when you're doing it in a creative field, there's a lot of uh, uncertainty yeah, that goes always. with that. Always. Uh, um, Drew, I just looked at the time. We're going to have to end this very soon. But I, uh, before we even stop the show, there is a new thing Eddie and I have been doing on this show because we talk a lot about media to talk about the media that we might have consumed this week that we think other people might be interested in. And there is a show that I just finished watching on Hulu. It's only three episodes. It's a docu-series. We talk about how I can't watch horror anymore, but right. for some reason, documentaries are more frightening. <laughs> but but yes. the fact that you are then educated and learn something about society, there is a docu-series from the Duplass brothers on, on uh, Hulu called Sasquatch that I just finished watching. It's three episodes, and it's about... This investigative journalist goes and tries to put some pieces together about a horrific Bigfoot murder that he heard about when he was at a weed farm in the early 90s up in Northern California. And in going up there, he un uncovers not just the Bigfoot mythology that is very steeped in society up there, but also... Mm -hmm. The underbelly, the crime underbelly that comes with like the Wild West of of weed farming and the, the Hell's Angels involvement in that. And yeah. that really drew me in. My dad was a part of the Hell's Angels before I was born. And it, it's, it's a crazy little thing. And it, uh, you, it really unravels in a bizarre way. And uh, if you're into true crime and documentary stuff i highly recommend it i it it's not what i thought it was going to be and when you talk about creativity and writing stories it inspired me uh, to pursue an angle on a project that has been long gestating in my head that's cool um, that's great so i've been thinking a lot about it since i watched it you i would like you to talk about one thing before we go uh, sure. the the groucho marx uh biography that you talked to me about briefly over the phone can you delve into a little bit deeper why this is um, a book that resonated with you and why I should read it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll back it up to like, why was I reading a, a, a autobiography that was written in 1958? Um, so during the pandemic, I was trying to get my kids uh, away from media that was terrifying, which was a lot of it, especially the early part last spring, summer. Um, so we began watching old Laurel and Hardy shorts and I thought, yeah. well, give it a try. Well, lo and behold, that stuff holds up. It's a hundred, almost yeah. like a hundred years old now. Oh, that's my dogs. Hold on. Um, uh, most of it, most of it holds up. Um, uh, that's your dog sounding like your kids. It's my dogs. It's my wife's coming in. And, um, anyway, so it's, uh, this, the comedy holds up. They love Laurel and Hardy, right? So then I thought, yeah. let's, watch, let's try Marx Brothers. So we watched some of the, like the Night at the Opera, Duck Soup. Oh my God, these are hilarious. And I thought, well, maybe I'm going to think they're funny, but the kids won't. They were howling. Like Harpo Marx is their hero. And then they wanted to know more about Groucho. And I was like, well, let's watch some You Bet Your Life. So on YouTube and on Amazon, they have- Oh, yeah. So, and this is a man who's a master at improv. Um, because he was just, he would have guests on and he'd do a quiz show thing, but he was really just riffing on- you know, who they are and what, they, but he was just, he's a brilliant, he's a brilliant, he, to me, he's the 20th century's Mark Twain. He's a, he was, he's a, he's a brilliant comedian. So I want to know more about this guy. Cause I really never knew anything other than the eyebrows and the mustache and the glasses. Right. And 
I read his biography, Groucho and Me, and it was wonderful and insightful. And it put me in, it made him a three-dimensional character. And I saw a, a gentler side to him, you know, because he was always very acerbic in his comedy. And But I also saw a dark side because some of his early adventures in vaudeville were just downright, you know, criminal, dark. Um, yeah. And just because that's just who they were. It was like, you know, carnival people. Um, but um, it was really enlightening to, to, to see the people, the faces behind the comedy. So anyway, during the pandemic, we went to be deep, deep nostalgia, almost to it's, it's historical. These documents are historical. They're not just films. Um, and then I wanted to know who this guy was. So, you know, we got into that. And then, um, but the book was crazy good. And, you know, while we're talking about it, I was like, the kids love Harpo, who's arguably one of the greatest pantomime clowns of all time. Um, so I, I found out that he wrote an autobiography too, in like 61 called Harpo speaks. And I thought, well, I want to read this too. So I read that as well. And as a companion piece, it was incredible reading. It was like two weeks of the most entertaining, enlightening, uh, stories of vaudeville and Broadway in the twenties and Hollywood in the thirties with Irving Thalberg and MGM and <clears throat> just the adventure of a lifetime that these men had. Um, and, and they were, they were pretty forthcoming in these documentaries, I suppose documentary, but in these autobiographies, um, you know, the Marx brothers were known to twist things and, and change facts. And, you know, I would read one thing probably Groucho said, and then his brother would tell the same story, but from his point of view. And it's like, <clears throat> it felt like someone at the kitchen table going, no, 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 it didn't go like this. It wasn't there. He wasn't there. <laughs> and it was two years earlier. You got it wrong. But they always each wrote their perspective. There's a little bit of a Rashomon, Ikura Karasawa there. That's funny. Um, where you'd get two versions of the same story. And I just found out that Chico um, has a, a biography as well. And I'm like, I want to see where these guys all went anyway. So yeah, of course, as an artist and actually to come back to the theme, you know, Groucho as a father, you know, he, like everybody else, he's complex, you know, um, he had weak moments and good moments and he had loving moments. Um, and his son wrote a book called, uh, growing up with Groucho, I think is called, um, Arthur Marks wrote it. Bill Marks has written something about his dad, Harpo. Um, and it's interesting to see how artists, um, and writers are, are also parents and family people, you know? Right. Right. And I think uh, in ending the show, I think one thing, well, not one, well, there's a lot of things, but one thing that really comes to mind a lot for me is harboring creativity and teaching the openness of expression to my daughter and not putting any sort of shame or messaging that that would take away any sort of confidence in her expressing herself <clears throat> however she wants to do it my daughter's loud she's wacky uh <laughs> she's two and a half and knows a lot of words yeah uh, i mean she's it's crazy it does already see bits and pieces of myself and my wife in her and to think about the ways that i was stifled and my voice was stifled and those certain weird quote-unquote behaviors of mine was made fun of Right. Growing up and how that has turned me into who I am. I think a lot about storytelling, no matter if it, you're writing a book or you're listening to a song or whatever, and the ways in which that can impact us and also impact our kids. And I think what you're doing now is pretty amazing. And, you know, being able to go and speak to thousands of kids like that, I think, is more 
uh, in the long term fulfilling than creating a horror short on YouTube and not actually physically connecting with the people that you're starting this quote unquote conversation with. So yeah. yeah. Thank you for coming on the show. I'm sorry Eddie wasn't here to uh, to meet you, but um, I feel like we've only cracked the surface on the stuff that we could talk about here, but we are running out of time. So, Drew, before we go, before I end this, do you, A, have any final words of wisdom you want to give our listeners, Ship? And B, is there anything you would like to promote? Uh, wow, well, let's see. Um, <clears throat> uh, I'm not much of a promoter myself, but... I do have a book coming out in uh, right before the beginning of the school year. It should be August, September. It's called Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Kid. It's a picture book. Um, and it's about a, a little boy who he normally wishes on stars. But in this case, a star has wished on him and has and shows up at his house demanding that this boy fulfill the wish. Huh. Boy says, well, what's your wish? He's like, the star says, I can't tell you or it won't come true. You're just supposed to know. Because um, I, I, you know, I, I gave you all the, your stuff that you wish for. So it's, it's a, it's a developing sort of, um, uh, uh, buddy comedy picture book about this kid and this, this little girl star who, um, she comes to see him and, uh, it, it's, it's a, it's a softer side again, getting back to the fatherhood thing. You know, I want I want stories that, you know, I can share with my kids. My kids are sort of out of the picture book world now, but I'm still writing for them and I'm writing for, yeah. Lily. I'm writing for Lily. There's a, you know, every time I do a school visit, there's, you know, 500, 600 kids in the gymnasium or the auditorium. And I look out and I just see my kids faces repeated throughout. And I, I know who these people are and I want to, I want to continue to give to them because it makes my heart happy. It's completely symbiotic. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, as far as words of wisdom, you know, um, I, I, I don't talk down to children. You don't have to, that will surprise you. That's a, that's a big lesson I have learned is, you know, just be honest and don't talk to them that like they're little. And I see the way my mom talks to my daughter and it brings me back to the way my mom used to talk to me when I was a kid. And there is that from a certain generation, that's what you do. And uh, yeah, it's interesting to, to come to that conclusion and that lesson that they, they may be little, but they're not different. (laughs) You know, Uh, that is a big, I think that's a big lesson to take away from just in, just being a parent in general. Drew, Daywalt, um, thank you for coming on the show. It's it's yeah. awesome seeing you after so long. Yeah, uh, you, too. you know, and I'm really I I am I'm happy with all your success, and I understand the the peaks and the valleys of this lifestyle. You and I are probably going to talk again sometime soon. But in the meantime, everyone, thank you for listening to episode number fourteen of the Dadward Spiral again. Thanks to Dragon Wagon Radio. You can go to dragonwagonradio.com/dadward dash spiral to find all of our episodes there is a merch store if you want a shirt or mug or covid mask that has a illustration of me falling in the silhouette precariously of my daughter that looks kind of like the vertigo movie poster which is what that design was kind of based on um i want one if you like what you hear please give us a review rating and subscribe on itunes and other places that podcasts are found and uh next week If all goes according to plan, we're going to have an old friend of mine named Brian Levine on the show. He is a paramedic, uh, used to be a drummer in a band, is a father of three, and he's going to talk to us about his experience with two of his kids have type 1 diabetes and the experience in being a parent 
um, in that situation. And I think there's a lot of people out there who are looking for answers and who may be able to relate to his experience. But in the meantime, I like to end the show by saying uh, it's chaos. Be kind to quote um, the late Michelle McNamara, Patton Oswalt's late wife. And uh, until next we meet, be excellent to each other. Hey everybody, Jake here from Dragon Wagon Radio, and I'm here with uh, Mark E. Extreme and Skeeter Skyflyer. Did you just have to read that? <laughs> okay, um, I mean, yeah. I, no, I, I, no. How, how could you possibly not know who I am? Because uh, my name is Mark E. Extreme, 15 plus years undefeated backyard wrestling entertainment champion and owner and the host of On Your Mark. So I'm offended that you don't know who I am, and I'm here with the shit on my shoulder. As Skeeter Scaffler. I mean, a lot of people don't know me, but it makes sense that people don't know you too. Look at everybody. I'm a pretty big deal, okay? Well, I'm, I mean no disrespect, uh, Mr. Extreme, I assure you, but uh, you mentioned you have a podcast on the network called On Your Mark. What exactly is On Your Mark? On Your Mark is the best wrestling podcast on the airwaves. Every Wednesday, we are deep diving into wrestling topics, like giving you a perspective like you've never heard before because there's nobody that can give you a perspective like I can. Well, a lot of people could give the perspective that you give on wrestling, but they're busy being wrestlers and being really successful in the ring and working and being in front of millions of people every week on television and in a crowd. There's nothing different. All right. I think I get what's happening. It's comedy. You guys are just doing a bit. Mark, you're like every 90s wrestling kid stuck in the past. And Skeeter, you're like the idiot little brother type who just loves everything, no matter how cheesy it is. I get it. You're, you're playing characters. You guys are like a pro wrestling version of Jimmy Glick or Tony Clifton. Uh, well, I don't know who the hell those guys are. And, you know, frankly, the, I'm kind of offended because I take this business very seriously and there's nothing funny about what we do. Right, Skeeter? That's right. So tune in every Wednesday. A new episode drops weekly covering new topics on onyourmarkshow.com also wherever you're listening to your podcast right now it's dragon wagon